Hey, welcome to the Common Sense Show. Uh, I'm your host, Micah. And before we get into our conversation with Keith, Keith Kepner, I couldn't say his last name. Now I can't say his first name. Um, <laughs> um, just a, a few housekeeping reminders. If you're interested in uh, learning more about small business resources and resources that you can use to scale and grow your business or to just kind of close the gap in learning knowledge, go to the commonsensepodcast.com forward slash resources. And you'll see there my library, the books I've read that have helped me out, stabilize my business, help me grow it. And uh, also uh, the stress test that I created. Uh, so you can take a look and see how you can uh, improve your business and and put a spotlight on the on the blind spots that you might have. Um, there is a charge for that stress test, but believe me, it's worth it. And you will learn more about your business than you ever have before. Before we get into our conversation, I'm Michael Logan. This is The Common Sense Show. You're listening to The Common Sense Show. If you've just started a new business, or if you're just thinking about it, this podcast is for you. Michael Logan has a stellar track record coaching small businesses to achieve six-figure revenue streams. The advice on this show is what has allowed him to have over 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur. Here is your host, Michael Logan. All right. Uh, as I mentioned in the open, um, I have Keith Kepner from Kepner Boxing and Fitness. And Keith and I are quite aligned on many things. Um because we are in the same industry um, for the most part with some key differences and, uh, and we're both franchising our business and uh, he's been around a lot of the franchising groups I have. And he reached out like, Hey man, we should talk. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that sounds like an awesome idea. And so here he is, Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate you, Micah. Hey, so um, before we get into um, just um, talking about your fitness businesses and um, what you offer and, and your take on all that stuff, um, tell us a little bit about what you do at Kepner Boxing and Fitness and uh, uh, why you decided to turn it into a franchise. Yeah, great question. I'll answer the first question or the last question first. So we started off as just a family brand, me just being a boxing coach and my wife having experience with managing gyms. And we just thought we were destined to these golden handcuffs of being owner operators and that the only reason the business worked was because of us being in it. And that was true at that point. And then uh, about uh, five years ago, we had our, our daughter, uh, Lena, and that encouraged Lissa, my wife, to step away from her, her more uh, front desk style work at the facility, as well as teaching some sessions, um, to step outside the business and systematize that portion. And we started bringing on team members to fill that gap. And then I slowly started filling up my gap with training coaches and developing curriculum and systems to support that. And then about 2019 or so, we had gotten to this level that was kind of our goal with our business, and we weren't having to work in it very much, and you know we we're doing reasonably well. And I was like, okay, well, what's the next thing? And uh, during that time, I'd begun sounds like similar to yourself, Micah, you know, coaching some other small business owners in our area in the fitness industry and whatnot, and martial arts, and uh, have a, developed a real passion for business with starting my own business. And uh, yeah, so I was like, how can I? combine all these things together. Do I want to be a consultant? No, I don't really want to do that. And whenever I honestly step aside from my one main thing, I have trouble. So how can I get all together? That's where we're offering the franchise system. And uh, so, yeah, we started uh, looking for a way to develop that in 2019 and then officially came on the market August of 2020. And then what we do as a, uh, you know, client facing brand is, you know, we're 
we teach authentic boxing training uh, with an extensive curriculum that's based on, we say, a 100-year lineage of boxing teaching and knowledge that comes from Chuck Bodak, who worked with over 50 world champions, including who's the Olympic coach Muhammad Ali. He trained my father, who fought 30 fights up in Chicago, and who was also a professional boxing coach. And uh, he passed down that lineage to myself. And then I've, of course, I've you know produced multiple Golden Glove champions and had guys fight on national television. And uh, yeah, but our difference is, is that we are a family-friendly environment. There's no swearing. It's a clean environment. Everyone's, we're really beginner friendly, but we teach beginners the right way and they can progress to really almost whatever level they choose to. Um, doesn't mean they have to, but they have the opportunity to. And because of that, we keep clients a lot longer than a lot of other models that just simply do boxing as only a form of exercise without the, uh, the true discipline and curriculum portion. Excellent. That's awesome. So um, you have mentioned the word curriculum like five times. Um, yeah. How is, okay. So I don't, you know, we try to avoid the, the whole, uh, the whole uh, uh, calling names thing, but what have you, what do you have you noticed in, um, in, franchise models that are boxing um that you're like well in general we do this better but specifically like we do this better because this is a better product yep so what what is there's a, a a proliferation of the fitness wearing boxing gloves right so people that are you know they're getting a good workout you know, there's some, it's high intensity workout, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, but it's really, if you water it down, it's just, they're wearing boxing gloves and they're getting in shape. <laughs> there's really no skill acquisition, no learning, uh, you know, conceptually or intellectually or anything. And so that's where I know people that are franchisees for some of these other models. Uh, they've been around for 10 plus years, some right. of them even longer. Some of them that have been around longer that I know you've probably heard of that some people don't even hear about it anymore. But anyway, um, this one gentleman comes to mind uh, where he was telling me, he's like, yeah, people train with you know him for a while and then they eventually come train with us. And not even people that are like, oh, I want to fight. There's people who are like, okay, I've done the workout portion for three months and you know it was fun, but uh, you know I kind of want to learn what I'm doing a little bit more and you know get all, all the benefits of it that you can get from really learning the technique. And so that's the real gap that we see and unfortunately, typically, if you want to step into learning more technique and everything else with boxing, there isn't a general safe bet you can go to in terms of authentic boxing gym. I'm friends with so many great boxing coaches that own real hardcore authentic boxing gyms, but you know, it's just sometimes not a really beginner-friendly environment. It's, uh, it's already intimidating to people, and it's, right. it's intimidating. And, uh, yeah, so that's where we fill that, that gap. You know, um, I, I like what you said, because that's often what we have experienced. You know, we offer, um, you know, similar to you boutique style fitness concept in a thousand yeah. square foot spot, you know, thousand and twelve hundred square foot spot. Um, so we call it the micro studio. Um, but we get beginners and people who are refugees from the color coded fitness franchise concepts all the time into ours because they like that. Um, they like the instruction piece. There's a psychological term for this in curriculum development for children. It's called the zone of proximal development. Have you ever heard that before? I actually haven't heard that. Okay. So the zone of proximal development is the zone at which 
a learner's abilities to to work or understand unsupported and the teacher's ability to bring them along that gap between that that two so what i find is that instruction based concepts mm. that involve this zone of proximal development tend to have higher retention models than other models because you're always holding that learning carrot in front of the person who's actually learning. So this is supposed to be the model in school, right? The reason yeah. why you go from K, the K through 12 education is supposed to be modeled off the zone of proximal development. So the teachers are always supposed to be kind of just bringing kids along just outside their zone of, of learning so they can continue to progress them through a curriculum. So right. what, what you've built, um, similar to what we, I, I can say what we've built, I think in both yeah. of ours, um, and the progressive nature of the, the program curriculum, I think this is so important. And the key to retention is because people, if they want to learn, then they're going to be interested in their mistakes and they're going to ask questions. That level of engagement is going to endear them to what you're, what you're offering. No, absolutely. And, and by its very nature, there's, it's like the classic thing, progress is happiness, right? Mm -hmm. And people are, are not going to have well again it's it's one of the limitations of uh of one concept in in my direct niche that really became popular over the past 10 years and now they're kind of on the downslide um unfortunately for them but if it's just the same you can say the workout changes every day but if there's like the same variables all the time and there's really just not like you're saying some type of intellectual stimulation, some type of learning component that pulls people up or at least gives them something to be aspirational towards. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be hard to keep people because that's what I see is like someone does a, a workout with one piece of equipment, let's say. So uh, this is it, it's easy to just like uh, this is me saying this is just going to like call out certain concepts because of them being ubiquitous. <laughs> but like rowing, like let's Thought say leadership is hard, Keith. Right. Right. Hey, man. Um, but like rowing concepts. Right. Yep. It's like a rowing franchise. Right. There's mm -hmm. one that's called like row or something. Anyway, um, it, I, I'm, they mix it up. Right. They incorporate dumbbells, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. OK. But if at the end of the day, if it's just exercise with using rowing, you know, that's going to eventually get stale to somebody and they're going to do something else. I mean, you can only get so good at a rower, I assume. Right. Um, and then same thing with treadmill style classes, spin style classes. Um, and, and even sometimes things like, you know, the CrossFit modalities, which have, you know, gone up in popularity and then it kind of waned down. I know so many people, uh, I was just talking to a guy recently that they stopped the, doing their paying their dues to CrossFit because the name is not as important as it once was. And, uh, there's really no benefit to them paying that anymore. You know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned this because, um, what I find interesting about this concept is, okay. So like in, in, in good businesses, you create something that people want to engage in. Like we talked about mm -hmm. your curriculum, we talked about the zone of proximal learning, but here's the thing about that. When you have a curriculum based exercise program, um, or in our case, we just call it programming, right? Yeah, so, of course. Um, but our programming is progressive and it's, and it's specific and it's, and, and it changes. So it's progressive within a quarter, it changes every day, but there's also a goal for every month, right? And so like, you know, there's all those things involved in it. The, and I think to your point, if you're going to a concept that is running, rowing and using dumbbells or 
And, and it doesn't matter how many variations of one of those things that you do walk backwards, walk on your hands, <laughs> you're still on the treadmill, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. um, but it also doesn't link that person to the zone of proximal development, the improvement that people are looking for. Now it may make them sweaty and tired, but there's, there's, there's a piece missing there That's as right. a franchise owner and a concept like yours and a concept yeah. like mine, the benefit to selling a concept like ours to an owner is that because the program curriculum is set, you can hire from core values and personality. And so when you hire from core values and personality, the people who end up running, so so, because really the issue typically is in 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 instructive settings, so like school, things like this, it it typically comes down to the personality of the teacher and do they want to teach, right? That's right. And so like for, for concepts like ours, okay, the curriculum, the program's already set. So now it's about the core values and it's about the personality because now you can hire someone with a great personality because they don't have to work on the curriculum piece. That's right. And, you know, just to, to run off your point, that has honestly been one of the, the biggest learning curves that I, we're working on as a model to help articulate to potential franchisees mm-hmm. is how important that factor is because they, they don't quite, some people quite don't understand it. And, uh, yeah, I tell people all the time, like one person comes to mind, one of our most successful coaches uh, as of the past two years uh, is someone who actually is a teacher and, you know, they teach high school. And so they come with that mentality. They're that type of person. They had zero boxing experience before they came to us. And they got to the point very quickly, like you said, with the curriculum, with the programming, everything else that, you know, all the clients are asking them, you know, for advice, et cetera, et cetera, things like that, because they've they've really immersed themselves in what they're teaching and that's what's required. And they have the character traits comprise that or contrast that with another individual that came on with them at the same time who had a little bit of boxing experience mm-hmm. and no one was asking that person any questions. Cause they weren't, they, they didn't have the right, you know, the right thing, the right personality, the right, uh, you know, traits of that teacher aspect and mindset and the personality that, you know, drew people in. So yeah, completely 100% agree with what you're saying. Um, and that's really powerful, man. I had, well, I had a how point. do you coach that to that that um, to franchise owners then? Because because here we are, we're in. Let's say we're in um, Kepner University, sure. right? And sure. we're learning about. Is that the name of your university? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we're learning about the actual operation. Um, yeah. And you you know the business owner has to face reality of which is a hiring. And as a franchise yeah. owner, we are limited as to how, how involved that we can be, but you can teach them how to think about how to hire. How do you address this in your training? Well, so we, we have the interview processes and everything else. So we, we basically talk to them like, Hey, run through this line of questioning. It's all these different situational questions, things that I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, a lot of it, honestly, we borrowed from Chick-fil-A and a couple other different concepts like that, right. uh, where you ask the same question, like three different times in three different ways. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so just all those different little tools and tricks, uh, to, to really vet out somebody that possesses the right character traits and, or the right track record. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's like, we tell franchisees in our training that, uh, after those references check, the, the only time I didn't listen to a reference check, I I had to pay for it. You know, I I was sorry that I didn't. And the, the reason why I didn't listen to the reference check is because the person that I asked or the reference person, uh, I didn't honestly respect that person very much. Uh, as a manager. And that was wrong because still their experience was very valid with that uh, team member that they had. Interesting. 
Yeah, no, that's, no, I think that's, I think that's really like bringing a franchise owner through the mind of a successful interviewer um, and, and onboarding an employee that actually you may have dismissed because you just assume that they may not be the right fit. So yeah. this is your teacher point, right? Versus the boxing fit, which is, well, how did you know how to hire that? How did you know to hire the teacher versus to hire the boxing instructor? And it maybe you didn't know what the success would look like, but there was something about that teacher that made you hire them and now is making them successful in the studio. Um, have you pegged that? What, what, what was that? So not after the fact, but at the time of the hiring, what, what, what made you pull the trigger on that one? Well, so this is something that's funny is that, well, in that specific situation, so her, 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 uh, her boyfriend, who is now her fiance, was actually doing uh, some coaching in our facility. So, and I knew that he had strong ethics and things like that. So, you know, it, it helped, it helped vet the process, but really Micah, and this is, this is very, <laughs> this sounds ridiculous to some people, but the fact that she was going into teaching is what made it appealing, but also the fact of, like I tell so many of our franchise uh, partners and or managers and or team members, that you want people with zero to little boxing experience because there's a correlation, not a causation, but a correlation with individuals that sometimes get into combat sports and um, where they, they come at it from a certain place. And it's like, you know, I talk about to be a great athlete, you have to be self-absorbed. You have to have a, a big ego and things like that uh, to an extent to be successful and, and also, let's face it, combat sports can be brutal and things like that. And so it draws those type of people. And uh, not everyone learns the, listen, the lessons of discipline and humility that you hope they learn through combat sports. And uh, so because of that, it is honestly something that's hard to overcome if you have previous boxing experience sometimes, uh, generally most of the time. Yeah, it doesn't sound ridiculous to me because if you think about the whole goal behind the military it's to break down everything you know and the bad habits that might get you killed in combat mm -hmm. um and then to build you into something that remembers um your training and survival techniques and behaviors that will both save the people you're fighting for but also the people you're fighting with that's right and you know there there's something to be said for you know nurturing someone who's a blank slate because then you can kind of train out especially in the franchise business where you have to be systematized and organized there's something to be said about installing um you know you know kepner instruction like you know 2.0 in them yeah. and that's the that's the only operating system they, they know when it comes to this particular phase of life and then in this case you have the extra benefit of having someone that actually knows how to engage a group of people who are listening to them and then um, and then kind of like kind of move that way. But it doesn't yeah. sound completely unreasonable to me. And I think that's, this is where um, I think this is where the genius of combining um, the having the curriculum already set to achieve that zone of proximal um, development, but then also combining that with proper hiring of people who can espouse your core values, but also to um, that, that just are just engaging. To, to speak yeah. to, to be around, to listen to, because people will always want to be a part of that. And it, let me it give really you an example. 
let me give yeah. an example of a failure. So in one way that we help. And so like with our first franchisees that signed on, and we're still willing to do this for people right now, you know, I sat in on an interview with them for a coach. And one of the interviews for the coaches, uh, one individual they had, um, it went really well. And my franchise partner asked, you know, the questions and went deep on the questions and there were answers with another person that they did end up bringing on because they just, they made the decision. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's their location. So, you know, unless there's a huge red flag, I can't tell them not to bring them on. Right. Um, and I want to let them also, you know, experience that, but it was interesting though. They were interviewing this person and this person had like really excellent one-liners, right? Like really excellent, like little positive thinking quotes and stuff. And, you know, everything else. And, you know, the, the, talking about how they're into personal development, and all these things. And, you know, which I'm into as well. But the challenge was that when you ask them, you know, it, it goes back to actually a Chick-fil-A thing that we took for our concept. Uh, and I'm sure it's been other places, but it's uh, ask three questions deep, right? So you ask mm-hmm. someone a question, ask them three more questions deeper about that. And man, when you ask this person, like just two questions deep, they start falling apart and just start kind of repeating themselves and not being able to expound and expand on what they're saying. You know, it's like, if you ask me like, you know, Keith, why do you like being a business owner? And I give you a basic answer. You can ask me again about it. Well, Hey, go deeper into that. And I can kind of tell you a little bit more, a little bit more because it's the truth uh, versus kind of, a, unfortunately, sometimes maybe a facade or, or what I would like to be or like to think, but I, but it's not something I am yet at that time. So. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's smart. And I think there's a lot of that in general, outside of the business world today, people have these ideas about what they believe. They believe they're being objective, but it's all subjective. And, you know, it does, there's a thin veneer of objectiveness hiding behind the massive glacier of subjectivity. And so as soon as you, <laughs> as soon as you rip that bandaid off, it's just like, ah, oh, well, I don't know why I believe what I believe. I just believe it because I believe it to be true because it's my truth. You know, um, you know, people hide behind trying to figure out something because it's their truth, not because it's actually accurate. Um, mm. And it's not well thought out. They just say it. But um, and I would say this, too, is that then when that person gets in a hard spot, they haven't done all that thinking, which is almost building the foundational aspects of that concept or philosophy, then they're easy to be challenged and knocked over you know, yeah. by life or situations or whatever, mm. and, uh, or by their own energy levels. Um, and so that's one of the things that, you know, I'm really big about, and I can see you are as well It's like the philosophy, right? The philosophy of being a leader, an owner, et cetera, right. uh, and what you do and behind it, because in my opinion, if you don't have that philosophy that you've developed with inside yourself, you've borrowed it from other people, pieces of it, and you've plugged it all together to your thing that you truly understand. And if someone doesn't have that, or, isn't working on developing that. And they're just kind of, you know, putting on a nice outfit uh, in a sense, then uh, they're not going to work. And that's where like you and I know too, you have great people that are great interviewers. Right. right. Uh, and it's, it's, I'll tell you a beautiful little quick question that uh, is one that, you know, cause I never, so my, my business experience and everything else you might not know or know is I, I worked at Subway as a sandwich artist. Mm. And uh, uh, I, that's about the only work I ever did. And mm. so um, I've never led anybody. I've never, you know, really honestly, you know, worked like a real job job. And, uh, so not having experience like that, you wouldn't know how to hire people. You wouldn't know how to vet them and ask them questions. So I think it's, it's given me a, a good, unique perspective 
for some of these people that haven't done that either and saying like, Hey man, yeah, like I haven't done it either. And these are some of the things. And one of the questions that's real powerful that I love is uh, the reference check question. So even if like, I recommend, you know, talking to references, but let's say, you know, it's not always perfect world. You're not able to, you got to get someone on fast or whatever, but you ask them, okay, what would your references say are your areas that you need to improve upon? And a lot of times like that question alone kind of calls their BS and they have to kind of think about like, okay, what was the thing that they said to me? Because this guy's going to talk to my reference and I don't want to be, you know, out of sync with what they say. Um, right. So that, that was a, a big little learning curve. You know, something, Micah, that I love about your concept is you fit into that micro, like you said, right? Mm-hmm. Into that thousand square feet. That is so killer. And that's one of the things with our concept that we're, we're, we're like working on how many different ways we can slice it, but man, fitting into that thousand square foot, you know, uh, slot huge for growth. And that's what I love about your concept is that that is just, man, it's just beautiful. I I feel like it's on, it's right on the precipice of when rent radically goes insane. Right. Mm -hmm. So like it, the, even when the economy is booming, um, a thousand square, a thousand square feet is a thousand square feet. So you have, there's a cap there. Like it can't get wildly expensive for the individual. So then guess what? COVID happens. And yeah, you may lose some members, whatever the case is because of COVID, but it's not an insurmountable hill to climb, you know, to maintain it, to make it work for your business. And so um, I find that it's, it's like really, and even class A space. Now it may be more expensive than you would regularly want to pay, but it still keeps it it keeps it high enough where if you're in, you know, where if you're in a good territory where you can sustain it and it's actually, it's actually um, really good, you know? Um, Well, class A space too, it pays for itself in theory because of it's, you have to almost allocate that as marketing spend. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Location matters. Um, Now we were talking about branding and it's funny because you were talking about the philosophy of that, you know, business owners create, you know, specifically yours, um, when they're creating the ecosystem of their business. And one of the things that I was thinking about kind of when you were saying that is that if you don't, I, I just finished a, right before we started an interview with a brand expert about branding. Um, if your philosophy, if you don't haven't created a philosophy for your business where people are touched, you know, and touched by it, like they have a good gut feeling about it, then your brand is going to crumble underneath the scrutiny that it has. Cause there's nothing really that's foundational to it. That's kind of holding it there. So by combining your foundational principles, your core values and your business philosophy, combining it with that zone of proximal development that we talked about that curriculum, and then have it being engaging with your current members and knowing how to engage people with a lower level of sophistication, what you're doing is you're creating this massive cycle of, um, trust and respect for your brand, right? And, and, and brands that people trust and respect, they stay so much longer and they pay so much more for it because they know people will pay not to get screwed or get oh, paid yeah. to know someone will show up and to know that what the deliverable is going to be on a regular basis. And that's what I've seen in my brand. People yeah. stay at least 18 months on average. It's insanity. The, we got that, so- hey, wait, yo, yo, my friend. Go ahead. Literally got the same exact darn number. Are you 18 months too? 18. Yeah, 18. I was just about to ask you yours. So, so okay, so let's talk about that. So the attrition rate on average in the health and fitness industry, according to URSA, is yeah. 50% over six months. Yeah. 
50%. So last year, which was a heavy COVID year, and I'm, I'm interested to hear your number. And this is yeah. going in our FDD. And I don't know, yeah, you're, yeah. Not, you're not a franchise. Um, you're not buying a, a milled franchise, so I can tell you. So basically, we ended the year with a 94.5% um, retention rate. 2020 or 2021? 2020. 2021. 2021. Don't buy. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So, I mean, that blows away the, the industry, industry average. Um, oh, yeah. And 94.5% retention rate for us is low compared to what it normally is. It's usually hovers around 96% um, to 97%, depending on what do you got? Where well, you guys so at with retention? Attrition, attrition, and retention is interesting. So I'll, I'll, you know, you and I can talk off the record about how how you determine that number, right? Yeah. Because depending how you determine it, it can it can it can float a couple different ways, mm-hmm. right? But um, but just to throw numbers at you, I mean, we're you know we're nearing the single digits in a college town with my location here, so that's right. you know that's one of our things. And I mean, but don't be wrong, we've been. Back in the day, which is funny too, because back in the day when I was in the business all the time and I thought I was providing so much value, which I mean, I was, but I mean, we do it more because it's, it's, everything's better now and I'm out of it more, which is completely counterintuitive to what the old me would think. Um, But we, you know, we were like in the 20 pluses, you know, of uh, attrition and um, which still, by the way, blows away. Yeah. The the average, right now, but Hey man, you know what the word average comes from, right? Do you know the etymology of that word? I don't tell me. Ooh, happy to happy to give you this gift. So I found out. See, I have this big fat book. It's actually downstairs of the etymology of words. And uh, so the etymology of the word average is actually a merchant term from I think the Middle East, mm-hmm. and uh, it basically meant damaged goods. Interesting. So that's a way that you know we talk about average, like with our people and team, is like you know average is damaged goods. You know, it's because uh, think about when when a when a commodity or or maybe something precious and special gets damaged, mm-hmm. it gets averaged, right? And so you know the average is to be avoided at all costs, right? It's so, so the theory is that it's still usable to some extent, but not fully right. usable. Correct. So it's yep. been partially wasted somehow. That's right. That partially wasted. Ooh, man, yeah. And unfortunately, some many people live their life like that or run their business like that. And that's something as well, like, you know, just kind of uh, opening up. It's over this past year, for instance, with the location that I own, you know, the, I only spent about five hours a week working on the business, not in the business. Um, is, you know, I had that realization as well. It's like, OK, yeah, I'm growing this franchise and everything else. And I'm, you know, putting all I have into it. But also, I mean, I don't need to let my location be average. You know, I was kind of approaching it from this idea of like, well, you know, right now our location does really well, but I look forward to other franchisees, you know, kicking our cor- you know, corporate locations. But, you know, whether it's because of location or demographic or something like that. Right. Um, but I'm like, no, nah, I don't need to do that. It still needs to kick butt. <laughs> you know, it doesn't need to be average as far as my system goes or whatever. So. Right. So, so where are you got, where's your corporate location located? Athens, Georgia. So we're well, you're in Georgia too. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. You in Georgia? No, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, that's awesome. Um, and so tell me about, um, so your franchise part, fr- so in franchising, we talk about franchise partners and franchise yep. partners 
for lack of a, for, so to explain to the audience, but why don't you describe what a franchise partner is? Because we see, we, we view it the exact same way. We're in, we're in yeah. lockstep with this definition, but I'll let you explain it. Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of uh, how the general world views a franchise partner, that's someone that you sold a license to, to operate your system. Um, how I'm sure you view it and how we view it as well is it's frankly investors in this brand and company that, you know, is our concept. Uh, and that's really honestly the power of it and also, you know, how it's looked at. So to give you an idea, like with our, you know, partner in Florida uh, who wants to end up doing multi-unit and he's successfully done that with uh, another concept, um, you know, it's like with all these people, especially early on, you know, these are people investing in the future of the mm -hmm. brand, you know, so it's almost like in a sense buying stock in a way, but yeah, so it's, it's really their partners, their investors, um, they are mentorees, uh, as well. And, uh, yeah, that's what it is. And I tell you in some ways, I'm a very creative person. So, you know, maybe I would still, well, I was maybe still make the same decisions I did before, but getting to know the franchise world and getting to know what a good franchise is versus not a good franchise. Mm -hmm. Um, if I were going to start a business again, or, you know, maybe if I start another business that has nothing to do with what I do now, um, I would probably buy a franchise. Uh, that's a good franchise because a good system, like, you know, you got the coaching, um, you got all the systems, you got the procedures, you got the marketing, you got all the, all the hard stuff, all the stuff that, man, we struggle with, or even all the limiting beliefs. Cause you know, and what's great too, is to, to, you know, be someone with more experience in the franchise system, the franchisor, and they already have some of those limiting beliefs broken of like, oh man, no, like that, that wouldn't work. Like there's one thing that we started doing, which I'm not going to say what it is because our director of franchise operations, Justin said not to share it. But um, if we started doing this thing and it just really started killing it, and this is just in the past month. And we had literally known of this concept of this strategy over the past two years. And we just had like, we're like, ah, oh, no, that wouldn't work. People wouldn't do that. And we're like, you know, we're at this point where we're like, you know what? We need to test it out. We need to see if this thing works. Mm -hmm. And if it works, then we can give it to everyone else and be like, hey, it worked for us. So you can do it too as a partner. Right. So, no, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and, that, and, and franchising, that's really what it's about. Like, so, like from two different sides, right? And you, you really have to think like a franchisee and you have to think about it like a franchise owner. You have to protect your brand and everything that you have. But you also have to think about it from the franchisee's perspective, which is that, okay, I want, I want to buy into a, 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 um, a franchise concept that is constantly being refined and developed mm. and um, where the the owners are innovators or at least looking to innovate and kind of help us to maintain the revenue. If something doesn't work, admit it and then move on, make the correction and move on. I think that being honest about what works and what doesn't work or what started to work and didn't work and having to change it is very important to success. And of course, digging into those franchise partners who have some suggestions about well, how could this work versus this? And like making it and, and taking their suggestions as um, a measure to try to continue to innovate and stay ahead. I mean, it's a brilliant, what you're doing is brilliant and it's very important, I think, for the growth, long-term growth of, um, you know, of these franchise concepts. And you're absolutely right about buying uh, into the franchise concepts, concepts as well as a business, like, cause cut, cut the learning curve, you know, right. people like you or I, who didn't really have that foundation, maybe that business acumen when we first started, like for me a couple of decades ago, um, like I didn't even think about a, starting a franchise or being involved mm -hmm. in a franchise. Um, but you know, it is, there, there's a lot of power behind, 
you know, you're not, you're not giving up or you're not less of an entrepreneur. You right. know, you're not like some, some random dude who's just like, oh, let me, let me just buy a franchise because, you know, like I want to own a business, um, but I'm not really an entrepreneur. Like that's, it's like, I, I feel like sometimes people consider people who buy franchises like, oh, you're not entrepreneurial, but like, that's not true at all. No, no. I'll give you an example. So the, the gentleman, you know, Matt, who just signed on for uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, um, exactly what you're saying. He's had management experience. He's managed, you know, like 15 years of restaurants, you know, and just like done all these different things. And I remember when I first talked to him, he was like, yeah, I really want to own my own business, but I don't, I don't want to like bother, you know, I, I don't, he says, I really don't, I think if I remember correctly, like I'm not like creative enough or want to be uh, creative to the point where I have to like build my own concept from scratch. All right. So he wants to exercise all of his entrepreneurial muscle, like you're saying, but just with, you know, a system and a, and a brand that's, that's already there. And, um, and if you look at it, like, that's probably like one of the smartest things you can do. Yeah. Um, and obviously like you and I know the success rate of franchisees is so much higher than an independent business owner. Um, and, uh, yeah, like you're saying, it's funny too. Cause like, Oh, so on your point, so, you know, I come from an artsy background, music background. And, um, so when I was all into playing guitar and playing in bands and stuff, you know, I'm in Athens, Georgia. So that's where like REM B-52s is from and all that stuff like that. So big, yeah. big music cool. town. And, uh, so I had this whole vision of like the star, the starving artist, right? And I thought that's what it is. That's what it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. and all that stuff like that. And I think people almost have that with the business owner or with the small mm-hmm. business owner is like, you know, like you're saying, like, oh, you know, you get into a, like people say, oh, you, you get into a franchise. Oh, we're not a real entrepreneur. You're a real entrepreneur if you know you, your business is kind of crappy and doesn't work well. <laughs> right. You're, you're eating Vienna finger sausages and right. Like, you know, ramen yeah. noodles. Yeah. And it's golden handcuffs and it like, you, you got to right. be there every second. If it doesn't, it's going to fail, you know, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, that's where so many business owners I've seen, uh, particularly in Athens, but also I know all around, uh, they, they start a business, they think they're a business owner, but you know, they truthfully, they own a job and uh, they, they don't, they don't realize the the chasm or the gap between what is actually business ownership uh, and what they're doing. I think a challenge that you and I, we'll have to face in this journey is changing the narrative about what businesses are franchised because, you know, I was on Twitter, which is the cesspool of America. <laughs> um, the circular firing squad to say the least. Yeah, um, totally. And wow. um, you know, I'm, a, I'm so in next month, which is February, I'm going to be on a panel um, specific, you know, I'm black. I'm sure you could tell by looking at my face. Um, right. Surprise. Um, I'm going to be on a a panel talking about building generational wealth, um, specifically for minorities, um, through, and we're talking about through franchising is really the the point of it. And so like it has someone comment on Twitter saying, Oh, well, the margins are really low in franchises. And I'm like, well, what are you talking? Like, you know, I, you know, I, the thing is Twitter starts from like 50 and then goes to a hundred, right? Like it doesn't ever start to zero, but the reason why it starts at 50 is because typically the responses are what cause people to go insane. Right. Correct. Like, so if you respond like a jerk, then people just kind of flare up. So yeah. I asked a simple question. I'm like, well, what do you, well, what do you mean? Like the obvious question, um, yeah. you know, and then, and then the person responded, well, most franchises have low margins. Um, you know, from what I've seen, 
right? So this, so you already bring the tone down, right? Already mm-hmm. of kind of what the question was. And I'm thinking, well, you know, now if we were just talking about statistically, if we were just talking about restaurant franchises, then you'd probably be correct, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's true that restaurants are no- notoriously have low margins. It's, a, it's, a, it's a clearly a volume business. They have to fill the dining rooms or the counters, serve a certain amount of lunches, flip the tables. Like that is the restaurant business. They work, they're working on th- thinner margins than most industries. Um, and they have very heavy inventory costs. I've never run a restaurant. You've worked at Subway, so you know that it's like, they probably tell you this many pieces of this, this many pieces of that, because the margins are razor thin. And oh, so yeah. um, I told her, I said, well, you know, you realize that there are other franchises out there as well, like fitness franchises, home service franchises, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and then she's like, oh, well, they don't, they, they don't pay a living wage. I'm like, well, where did you get that from? You know, like, mm-hmm. where does, where does that come from? You know, like, like where are you getting this information from? So the point is that the lady, um, I, I'm not sure if it was a lady or not, but like she had no concept of franchises outside of um, the restaurant industry mm-hmm. and, and why they could potentially be successful. So I think when a person's thinking about a, like a franchise, maybe in a fitness concept, we have to just kind of let them educate them on like, okay, well, so there, there are different levels of margins in franchise businesses. And this is why, and this is how we, this is how we create leverage in our business so that we can achieve the margins that we do. You know, it's, it's, it's obvious it's large group, it's small group, whatever the case is that creates large, that creates that leverage per hour per operating hour. Um, well, let me but, tell you something real quick too. Yeah. Just to like to shoot some shots off, to fire some shots, right? Fire shots, other. man. Okay. This is like you know, going to be the verbal um, equivalent of a Twitter right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, the same person maybe that would say what that person said, yeah. um, or at least has that concept. You know, I honestly bet Micah that at least a similar person with similar concepts may be sold into a multi-level marketing scheme. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. And oh, look, you know, the margins are so great. I always type, you know, um, where there's other challenges with that business structure uh, of that. Uh, whereas a franchise like you and I know is so highly regulated and everything has to be disclosed so much that that's what I love about it. And that's one of the reasons we got into it is because, you know, again, I mean, I'm sure there's some MLMs that are like maybe fine or whatever. I don't know. But um, you always hear the horror stories and it, let's face it, it's just not a very well-regulated industry. So therefore right. there's a lot of room for stuff to happen. Yeah. So um, yeah. So that's when we're looking at franchises, like, okay. I was like, let me look at this really closely. And if this mm. is like too much like that, I'm not going to get into it, right. um, but finding, okay, what's well, really well-regulated. So like, again, with that person, if they were going to start looking into franchise concepts, like you and I know, you know, they talk to uh, some franchisees and, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure they're going to find some horrible ones, uh, but they're going to find a lot of good ones too. <laughs> exactly. So, I'll tell you one thing too, is that everything, hmm, I look at everything from the, from the, the lens of business ownership. So, you know, that gives me a biases, but mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff, man, it's all a ladder, you know, it's like the idea, like with the living wage or, you know, anything like that, you know, it's a ladder. And now granted, some ladders don't lead anywhere, right? Some ladders, the, these maybe the, um, the steps between each ladder is so far that you can't reach the next, uh, you know, part, but with a lot of things, you know, there's a ladder. I've seen so many people climb that ladder. So many people from so many different backgrounds. Um, and yeah, it just, it, it, you, you have to be the right person 
for the right opportunity. And mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, because you, uh, you could buy into a franchise like you and I know, and it could be a great franchise and you could mess it all up. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, I think that's an underrated point, um, actually, which is that just because there's good, good margins and it looks good on paper, um, it doesn't mean that your personality profile fits this specific business. And, right. and because personality, not what type of personality specifically, that's kind of, that can be objective and psychologists have measured this for decades, um, types of personality and, and the traits of personality. I'm talking about the personality fit to the business is very subjective, right? Cause you can say mm-hmm. on paper, well, this works, but like, okay, well, does your, your, your specific individual personality work with this, right? Because, in the fitness industry, as you know, it's very closely actually related. And this is why sometimes I talk, when I talk to franchise brokers who are selling our concept, um, it's like, well, look for people in hospitality. Mm, that yeah. tends to be a very closely linked, in my opinion, industry yeah. to fitness, patience, um, uh, a serving attitude, um, a uh, attitude where you want to continually get better. Um, timeliness is important organization is important. You know, like there, there are a lot of features of people in the hospitality industry that match what I believe a good franchise owner and the fitness industry would, would be. That's a great point. That's a great point. That's something that with our, with the team, you know, that I oversee in Athens here with our location, something we've been harping on a lot over the past six months or so is just like really doubling down on that. Like, Hey, the way that I articulate to it, cause like all of our staff, well, not all of our staff, but the majority of our staff are under 23 years of age mm-hmm. is like, this is a house party and it's your house. Mm-hmm. So understand it's your house. Cause I want them to have that level of ownership when they're there. Um, and yeah, but it's like, so therefore if someone came into your house you're going to be like, Hey dude, I'm so-and-so, you know, that hospitality type feel and uh, you know, just really owning that. And that is a make or break. Cause you can have a great workout. You can have a great product or service, but I mean, gosh, there's been so many businesses that I've gone into, into that. Maybe I like the, the product or service in a sense, or I like the idea of it, but I don't even give it a chance or X, Y, Z because of those initial, you know, four or five seconds. Yeah. Yeah. No, true. So let's talk a little bit about um, let's do some like uh, quick uh, bullet points about kind of your offering and, and your take on this. So what do you guys yeah. do with help up with for pre-sales? So uh, pre-opening, pre-sales, grand opening, like what kind of support yeah. do you give for that? That's a great question. So, I mean, we support how a franchisee and we provide them with the exact templates and marketing that they'll use for digital to market their uh, pre-sale. We want pre-sale to be over the course of like two to three months, mm-hmm. um, you know, two months minimal. Uh, and then with that, we give them the offer structuring uh, that they can utilize. Uh, with the first franchisee that we launched, there were a couple of things that we have tweaked since then that have mm-hmm. uh, made it more powerful. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we we come down, we help them kick off their pre-sale, right? So that two to three month time frame before physically come down their field consultant, which is myself at this time, mm-hmm. uh, show them how to, you know, walk, uh, you know, the different stores and, and also mm-hmm. though how to make those uh, sales and commitments and, uh, and also articulate the brand and give that elevator pitch. And uh, yeah. And then also uh, with their coaches as well, getting all that on track and online. I feel like I'm not answering your question specifically, but. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, no, no, you did fine. I think, that, I think that's important. You know, like having boots on the ground, coming down there, addressing them, giving them marketing templates, all that is part of it. 
um, you know, f- the fact that they're not alone, that you're helping them with that is, is really key. Do you guys How do have- you support pre-sale? So it's a, it's a good question. So, um, well, first and foremost, I, so there's a marketing plan and then there's a pre-opening grand opening plan. So yeah. we handle the digital marketing for um, the pre-sale, number nice. one. Because we speak the language and we want them to learn the language, so we're gonna we're gonna handle that. Second thing is that we lay out for them a pre-opening um, game plan for them to execute with the other piece of that grand opening budget. Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, well, here's the plan, here's the playbook, the pre-opening playbook. Go implement this. Get your tables. Get your wacky, inflatable, waving armmen out front. Um, get your balloons. You know, here are the businesses that you want to you want to visit. Here are the people that you want to talk to. Um, this yeah. is how you set up some initial consultations prior to opening your facility. And then, um, you know, let's talk about founding members, founding member rates, found, founding member specials, and how long they are founding members before that converts to something else. Because we've got to make the unit economics work. So, all that stuff is really important. You know, we have a micro studio, which means that the economics of the studio have to meet like a certain metric. So, so the reality is, is that when you're setting founders members rates and things like this, you have to be very careful because you don't want to erode um, some of that profit, that potential profitability. So that's important. Um, and then of course, um, after giving them the playbook and coaching them on how to do that, um, we do have a minimum amount of members that we want them to have be- before they open. Um, and, and, and that is crucial because you know, look, if you can get them to break even um, when they open the doors, then you're doing great, right? Or something close to break even. They're going to be really happy with that. You know, they're going to feel like a success and you want to build oh, off man. that success. You know, you want to, it's all about wins, right? In every stage. First win, find your location, get your permitting, get your construction. These are all wins. And then the playbook is also win. So giving them the playbook with with steps on like where to set up, how to set up business. To, business Let me ask to you this, with, with your small, con- with, with your small footprint, and assumed, you know, a little bit higher ticket price per client. Yeah. How many, like, what's the number of clients that you want to have? So our capacity, our capacity um, I have to be careful what I say, of course, because this is a live broadcast that's going on yeah. YouTube and everywhere. But um, I can tell you that our capacity for thousands per feet is 111 members. That's about where we are. Okay. Yeah. And so is that what you want to hit pre-sale before you open? No. So we're redoing our FDD right now. And yeah. um, we're going to have a requirement of um, uh, a lower number. The FDD has not come out yet. So I still can't talk about that yet, but um, okay. we're going to have a requirement of a lower number uh, of, a, we will have a specific number of members to hit um, before they, before they open for sure. Gotcha. And the, and the goal so, is to exceed that by like 20%. Right. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so yeah. So with ours, I'll say our numbers just because I don't know and I don't care. But is uh so 50, 50 was the goal for our first. Yeah. Uh yeah, 50 was the goal for our first to open. Mm-hmm. And they did that. Uh, if they well, they hit it. They, yeah. And um how long did it take them to hit that? A few months. Okay. Few months. Yeah. And I actually just be crystal clear, they maybe it was a week into their first opening so they're right below it maybe and then they hit 50 into the first week mm. or, or you know what grand opening grand opening we signed up uh, we signed up a bunch of that for us that 50 um we the goal is moving forward is is we do want to aim for that 75 
And we are building out more things to help accomplish that. Um, you know, one thing as well that it sounds like you're familiar with is that it's, you know, when someone buys into a concept or everything else, they're not necessarily going to be the best at selling it yet. Neither is their staff. Right. And so the assistance with actually selling those founding members, uh, you know, it's the hardest part because it, nothing is there yet. Right. And it's not, they can't necessarily come in and try it yet. Um, depending. And uh, yeah, so that's, you know, we're going to start really providing a lot of assistance with that. Do so you, address, we, you address this though, during, uh, in Kepner University? Oh yeah. No, we have all, so we use, you're familiar with Trainual, of course, right? Yes. Yeah. So we use Trainual for all of our stuff. So our coach university, our, you know, owners manuals, everything else, everything has like learning tools, which is what we right. call tests. Mm -hmm. Um, and everything else to go through every aspect of sales, marketing, um, just all of it, hiring staff. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, I think that having that number is important and that requirement is important. Like any, well, any fitness-based uh, boutique franchise that I know of, and now I'm not sure it was always like this, but I know that Orange Theory started and theirs is like super high. Their their requirement for, I think there's, I think it's like 200 members for them to start. Um, yeah, but for facilities like ours that are obviously on the more the micro side of the yeah. spectrum, um, it's not a heavy lift to get them to have a certain amount of founding lift uh, members to get in. Like the number isn't like abhorrently high where it's just like, well, how in the world am I going to do this? And I think with a little bit of hustle and, and then the other thing too, is like, if you have a good referral program, um, then, you know, you really have the ability to kind of multiply that 50 members. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah, that's something that, oh, my God, because it's so easy in this current age. You know, I wasn't really around in business at all before before digital like digital marketing really blew up. Right. Um, so but to, to to man, to help people understand that it's like, hey, you, you don't have to pay for all your leads. And like that, I mean, that took me a long time to understand that, too, because it's mm -hmm. so easy to get leads through Instagram and Facebook, for instance, in the fitness arena and with like what we do um, with boxing, but to realize, oh man, like, you know, you can just take every single one of those leads and times at times five, you know? Yeah. And, uh, or like take your current member base and get referrals and not have to be sleazy about it, not have to feel weird or awkward about it. Just be straightforward and honest. Say like, hey, we're right. really working on drumming up referrals. You got anyone else who want to come and try it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's yeah, just, you know what it is? It's a failure to ask most of the time. Most people yep. just don't ask for referrals, but those referrals could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so um, tell me about um, um, your, uh, so, okay, so they open, get started. What's your support look like post-opening? Yeah, so going into, you know, pre-opening, pre-sale, and then as far as opening as well, you know, for the first couple months, you know, we're meeting with them every week. Mm -hmm. uh, at least on zoom and, uh, you know, running over all the important factors they need to be considering seeing how everything's going. Um, and then we do, uh, quarterly visits, uh, for the first year. And yep. then after that we space it out. Um, and it's really though, I mean, at this point being that we're so new and it's one of those things as well, like I know you're the same way is that, you know, we are completely invested in our franchisees success. Right. So, you, you know, want to be there. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, 
if, if it requires more, it requires more. You know, mm-hmm. I'm happy to say we've gone the extra mile uh, in quite a few different ways uh, mm-hmm. already and happy to do that because I am tenaciously and we are tenaciously committed to victory with this. And, uh, you, you, you know, it's like there, there's no other option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that, that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, early stage franchises like ours, this is just the reality of, of being early stage franchisers. Um, you know, let's talk about being an emerging brand, um, it, which is the same thing as an early stage franchiser, um, because you know, sometimes people are, are uncomfortable with starting with early stage franchisers um, because they think that they're just not sophisticated enough, you know, but there's, but there's a piece of being an early stage franchiser, emerging franchiser. I think that can be really beneficial to people, right? Yeah. I mean, their, their suspicions about being not as sophisticated as an established brand, their intuition about that is probably correct, but, but there's a, there's a opposite end of that, right? Which is that, you know, you talked about going the extra mile, which made me think about it. Uh, this point, like that's what you're getting. Like, you know, if you want, and right. as a franchise partner, you want a franchisor who's committed to helping you hit your unit economics. That's how you're going to get your investment back. That's how you're going to live. Right. Like, so you want to make sure that, you know, you're getting this money back. So actually I think there's benefit to having a smaller system where you can really engage at a closer level. Yeah. What do you think about it that? Is, it, it, it is, you know, if you look at, it's one of those things, it's like what I was preaching to everybody in 2020 Mm-hmm. Uh, and coming out of 2020, uh, cause when did you start offering franchises? Uh, 11 months ago. Okay. So did you hear any of the pandemic COVID talk? Did you hear some of that type of hesitancy from any prospects or anybody? Not really. Beyond. No, no. no? Um, in terms of like, no, they were actually there was not, I kind of tried to stay ahead of that by writing blogs and doing content about it. Um, but no, the, the can of the hundred candidates prospects that territory checks stuff that we've had. Um, no, the answer is no. Like, I, you know, and yeah. we furnished three FTDs and that, that never came up. Um, but I also in the presentation explained, like I kind of preempted it cause I kind of explained why, you know, a micro facility is actually good during COVID time because people don't want to go to a bigger place that blah, blah, blah. But, you know, but yeah, no, that wasn't a hesitation. But was that a hesitation for you, for some people? Oh, oh yeah, no, 100%. So, you know, I started getting on the phone in August of 2020. And, you know, uh, that was that was something I, I, I heard quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so the the concept though that simple as this or for instance to give you an example our first franchisee they were all about moving forward but with a few different things with partnerships and things like that for them to make it feasible and work uh they were facing a lot of that um and that hesitancy that fear right mm. and you know they understood this but so many people don't seem to understand this particularly people that are not seasoned in business is that when everyone else is running away from something or, or not there, that's the time to be there. And when everyone is running to something, it's probably too late, right? It's too late. And so that's like to your point of the emerging franchise versus the established franchise is that, yep. yeah, there's there's a proven track record and there's a value in that absolute 100%. But everybody may already be there or almost already be there. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity may be 
almost dried up or getting close to it. And, or the business might be reaching its life cycle. Like to talk about fitness, I'll talk about a brand that doesn't exist anymore. Curves. We all know right. curves, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you're over 30 and uh, that had a life cycle and it boom. Right. And so I've talked to a few people who have owned, who owned a curves and, you know, it fell apart. So think about the people that came into that over the past few years or the past few years of their, their life. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they had failure uh, versus again, like what you're talking about and what we do uh, is that you get into something that's new. It's uh, it has a, a little bit of a different take on things, but it's not so drastically different that it um, the market doesn't understand it. Uh, it's maybe only 10 or 15% different and that's enough to have a competitive edge. And uh, that's, that's the time you're going to get exponential returns, uh, you know, versus getting with something established and also get exponential uh, service and results, you know, and, and, and help. Yeah. I'm under no illusions that I was insane for launching my franchise during a pandemic, which is exactly what I did. Um, I think it's actually the most sane thing you can do. Well, I thought, I think that I still believe that because it gave me time to carefully craft, um, you know, messaging, like it's the most extreme time to do it. You know, it's overcoming objections. It, it, like, you know, it's easy, it's easy when everyone's eating, you know, to like, just kind of hop on the, it's like right now with being a real estate agent, like the real estate right. market in like Boston is so hot and like in major markets is so hot. Like in order to sell real estate now, you just have to have a license and a suit, you know, like that's it. You don't have to have, there's no overcoming object. Like how's it going for a hundred grand over asking right now? You know what I mean? Like in, in our area. So it's like, you know, this, how much skill is involved? Is, you know, I don't know exactly, but like, I'm just, I'm just saying like, I launched it in the pandemic, not to have a great story about the fact that I launched in the pandemic, but I figured that it's a great time to introduce a concept that was, you know, pandemic resistant, you know, mm-hmm. to the, it, it was resistant to the level of pandemic resistance. And yeah. um, I feel like that is something that is uh, worthy of conversation moving forward um, and other presentation and sales materials that will come up because no one will ever forget that this pandemic happened, even when we return back to normal life, um, which seems like it's slowly making its way there. Um, sure. Certainly not coming like a, like a train, but it's coming. Um, and, and, and the point is though, is that, um, you know, I thought about, I had, you had, you had outside the box thinking about how you can sharpen and refine your concept to make it actually, you know, survive something like, um, a black swan event, you know? Yeah. Well, and so interesting, that's really fascinating. That was your approach. So our approach was, like I said, you know, 2019, it was like, okay, we were making the decision about the latter half of it. Mm-hmm. And then it was about staying the course, uh, with, you know, with taking everything into account. Mm-hmm. Um, so not staying the course and being like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to sell rotary phones or create a rotary phone company when, you know, that's going out of business or something. Uh, and so, uh, but what it did allow us to do is because of, you know, we in Georgia closed down for two months, stuff like that. It allowed us to literally take any of the big tweaks that we need to put into our corporate location um, and, and actualize it and do it and flip it all over into the franchise system that we had been working on and uh, kind of open afresh. And right. it was just really powerful. And again, though, too, man, it's like, that, you know, the latter half of 2020, me talking to so many people that, you know, are like, oh, you know, what about COVID, you know, they just got all this fear and hesitancy, kind of coming online with that, with me in the franchise world and sales of franchises, uh, it made it so it's like, okay, well, now it's like pretty breezy, because I don't have those conversations anymore. 
Yeah, no, it's true. Um, those conversations are starting to wane. The businesses that have had pandemic issues. So I think there's going to be a bit of a tail to the, you know, the business closings, like they'll still happen for the next few months because, you know, they were once really strong and then like progressively got weaker over time. And, you know, yeah. so we'll, we'll, so the pandemic outside of business will have a long tail across generations because yes. it was too much interruption in the business world, franchise world, they, in the fitness specific industry, because this is what we're talking about today. Um, we'll also have a tail with some concepts as well. Um, and it will be in the sense of comfortability. It will be both objective and subjective tail. It, I think it will be ob- objective in the fact that there will still be businesses that were took too hard of a hit, undercapitalized, can't get maybe an equity infusion and will close. Um, and, then, and then subjectively, it will be pe- in people's minds that there is things like transmissibility with certain viral things or whatever, or just in general hyge- hygiene, they'll pay a little bit more attention to it. And are these bigger offerings offering you um, the, the most amount of um, like private interaction where you feel comfortable going, coming, you get everything you need. Plus I feel fairly safe being there. Right. So I think mm-hmm. that's another aspect and that's going to trail in people's minds for a bit. So, the, so I think from a uh, lead generation sense, you know, and generating consumers, but also generating consumers, which if we're trying to generate franchise owners, you've got to generate consumers. This is going to be part of their mindset. So like, I think that franchise owners who buy into the fitness business industry um, are going to be prime and they're going to, they're, you know, are going to be, have the opportunity to have like these solid businesses that just work, you know, that just work for them because people want to be attached to companies that, that can, that have a measure of control with their membership base. It's not open to the public, like a big facility. You know, it's like, okay, we know everyone who's here today. Everyone who was here yesterday, you know, we can control it. You know, there's, there's a measure of safety in that. What do you think about one of the biggest ripple effects from the pandemic, which is the online working out thing? Yeah, so, you know, digital fitness, I think will have a place. I wrote a blog, not a blog, well, it was a medium-sized post for Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn about this. Wait, very, you qualify your blogs by how long they are? Tell me about that. Kind of. It was kind of blogish. It was a little long for me for Instagram, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the reality is um, that the Peloton, Pelotons, and now the CEO just, I will put on record that the CEO just denied this, but it is what it is. Like, Peloton stock dropped over 20% last week, has not recovered yet. They've lost billions of dollars. Their consumer demand has waned. And I believe that a lot of this is a rejection of the fact of this long-term home workout thought, right? So it's easy to think that, you know, a workout demand, in-home workout demand is going to be super strong um, forever, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, because no one knows how long is it, how long it's going to last. But all you need is the government to change the narrative about whether we're going to live with COVID just in general and open everything up, or whether we're going to stay in this position where people are going to be home. It's already starting to happen. The Netherlands, UK, they, those economies those are opening back up. People are getting back to life. Um, it will happen in the US. Well, I don't know when, but it's going to happen. There's going to always be a place for hybrid fitness because I think that there's going to be people, for instance, who interact with fitness from a digital sense 
um, because they travel for work, they're professionals. They actually do enjoy having almost like telecommuting for work, maybe one workout at home and then a couple in the facility. Mm. But the, the, the fundamental shift of what now t- almost 200 years of, in- of in-person instruction is just insane to me. Personal training studios or boutique fitness studios have been around since the 1880s. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why. <laughs> That's right. Well, and to your point, or kind of brings back to the other point about the established franchise versus the emerging, is that, uh, like I was thinking about, man, it'd be so easy to sell some online franchise, whatever, right now. <laughs> right. But uh, like you said, there's not real sustainability in that market. Um, there's integration in the market, but it's not uh, that shift is not permanent and has shown itself to be so. And, you know, it was the biggest headline. It just goes to show that when you follow headlines, you're going to be wrong. And uh, yeah, so I okay, honestly- so you do when demand shifts. So like, how can you convince me? So this is a question for Peloton. So obviously Pelotons are expensive. I think this is, I think that part of people buying Pelotons is a, is a statement on, uh, is a state because it, it's a very expensive bike, very yes. expensive. I think it's more of a status symbol for some people than anything because it's so expensive. Not that they mm-hmm. necessarily intend to ride it. We have members, by the way. Oh, by the way, they own Peloton, and on some of the days that they don't work out, they come to us. Again, a hybrid approach. I think that's fine. Um, actually, yeah. I encourage it because. It allows them to afford what we do longer and to, you know, it gives them balance, which I yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I'm also a big fan of, for instance, someone like coming to train and also doing like boxing at an, yeah. like a, you know, I think that kind of fitness balance is important. Yeah. And we need more cohesion in the fitness industry anyway, about different types of modalities and how they affect people. And, you know, um, but that's Quick a drop on that. That's why with our memberships and our model, we have, you know, package options available that, make it so you can be like train at your place, train at our place, you know, that type of thing. Cause that is so important. Yeah. yeah. Choice, choice and consumerism now is, is, well, first of all, you can't control it because people are going to, going to buy where they're going to buy. But the second aspect of that is that we're in a global economy. So you can buy, you know, you know, you can buy anything anywhere at any time of day or night. Like you're not restricted now, like you were before to what you just knew or what was in your neighborhood or what people told you where to get things. Like you can investigate it yourself and, and then do multiple things. And that's what we find in our thing is that, you know, people come into us like three times a week, but they also do two days of like spinning or Mm -hmm. we've also had people do um, two days of uh, one or two days of boxing as -hmm. well. Um, so they may do two days with us and two days with the boxing and they like that dynamic between the two. And it's actually worked out really well for them because they're boxing because boxing requires a lot of proprioception that actually made like their lifts a a lot better in my opinion. Yep. Especially lifting with dumbbells. Right. Yeah. Um, exactly. And it's a very athletic movement that is not done in a pure, in like a specific set plane. And so, yeah, it lends itself to so many things. I'm getting texts from Eric's. Uh, uh, I think he's having another live right now. Um, but, um, but you know, absolutely right. And so, and that's why I think that, you know, so it was so important for us to do this podcast and I have to go, I have to take my wife to get a car. 
Get it. But I think it's so important for us to have this, have this podcast today. And I want to kind of have you back on. I actually want to yeah. do a live with you. So this will be recorded. This will be put yeah. on YouTube and um, an audio version. But I want to do a live. And I think that maybe what we can do <clears throat> is bring on, I know another wellness, like a small wellness, a wellness fitness business. I think, you know, if we, if we had a, like a fitness and wellness panel um, where we talked about the benefits of owning a wellness and fitness franchise, Ooh, um, yeah. I think that would be, I think that would be good content because people want to hear from, you know, these brand owners of these fitness businesses. And I want to battle against the narrative that franchises are only restaurants that drive. So that drove me nuts. I didn't say it to the lady or the man, whoever it was, I don't know. It's Twitter. It's, you know, it's just, it's that, it's that picture of um, the transformers when they're standing in a circle with their lazy be- laser beams. That, <laughs> is that is Twitter right there. Um, but would you be interested in, in uh, doing a, a roundtable oh, yeah. with wellness and fitness franchisers talking about it? Oh yeah. Well, and that's honestly the biggest thing, Micah, is that um, I, right now, today, I'm in the best shape of my life. Mm-hmm. Why am I in the best shape of my life? Because of the type of business I own. Right. You know, if I owned a darn restaurant, no offense to restaurants, they're great. I love them, but I, I wouldn't maybe be in such good shape. So you just can't help. It's a rubs off on you, man. It does. And like, you know, there is a little bit of that pressure. Like I'm in this industry. I can't be looking like, you know, job of the hut. Right. Like, you know, you yeah. have to be kind of, kind of controlled. You have good hands too, by the way, I saw your video. Um, Thank you. And my, my uncle was a gold glove boxer. He's dead now, but you know, he's when he was younger, but um, yeah, I, I recognize good hands when I see them. So. Well, well, Micah, so, you know, so, you know, <laughs> like full disclosure yeah. is that, you know, how they say those that can't do teach. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's largely me, you know, not that, I was like, you know, I, I did a little bit, but I've produced so many people at such a higher level and so right. much, so better than I ever was. And so like what I, what I tell all my, my boxers and stuff like that and coaches is, and it's the truth, it's the darn truth is I have produced so many people that could beat the living hell out of me at my best. And I'm so proud <laughs> right. of that. So proud that's, of that. That's amazing. And I think that you are creating like a curriculum and your setup for franchise owners to own is really important to the fitness space. And it's, I think it's uh it's a huge contributor and uh, I'm wishing you all the best success. Keith, thank you for oh, your time you. today. Where, where can people find you if they want to learn more about uh, Kepner boxing and fitness? Um, and if they want to become a franchise owner or just ask questions or inquire. Yeah. So Kepnerboxing.com is an excellent place to start. Also like you and I know you and I both are on LinkedIn and uh, I'm also on Instagram, coach Keith and coach Keith Kepner, something like that. And uh, we also have a pretty, you know, marginally popular YouTube channel, Kepner Boxing, uh, where we have a lot of instructional stuff there too. Awesome. And I'll put the links to all that stuff um, in the description for our podcast today, our simulcast. Um, thank you for spending time with me today, all the way from Athens, Georgia. That's right. Appreciate you, brother. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Later. Bye now. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Common Sense Show. Hosted by Michael Logan. The producer for The Common Sense Show is Paul Logan. To reach out to Micah and The Common Sense Show, talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search The Common Sense Show. And if you enjoy the show, please don't forget to rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.